0: Well, friends, as we think about the world we live in tonight, we've already been praying for the world. Seven billion and some change. um, People living on this planet right now. Billions of them have not heard the gospel. A staggering number of them. Also, even if they may have heard the gospel, have they heard the biblical gospel? Have they heard it to the fullest? Do they have a right understanding of what the gospel is? We come closer to home, we think about even in America, even in Florida, even in Nassau County, how many people in our daily lives don't know the gospel at all or have a skewed understanding of what it is and really what the gospel's function is in the life of someone who lives according to it. So what I wanted, want us to do now as, we've, uh, as we continue on with uh, Grow University is I want us to take some time over the next couple of weeks and talk about first and foremost what is the gospel? We can't, be, we can't uh, expect of ourselves to rightly share the gospel if we don't rightly understand what the gospel is, what its message is and how we can go about sharing it. Amen? Amen. So with that said, I want us to start tonight by looking at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes there and he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, To faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Okay, so let's ask ourselves then this first question: What is the gospel? When we 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 talk about that word, what are we talking about? What does that word mean? All right. So, in the original languages, and uh, if if you see some words that look kind of weird, there. Uh, I, I understand. It's, uh, in the original languages, we're talking about Greek and Hebrew. And I've tried to put some uh, phonetic spelling helper text there above it so you can see uh, what those words really pronounce out as. Uh, the word gospel in Greek is euangelion. Say that with me. Euangelion. Amen. All right. And then in, in Hebrew, the original word is uh, besorah. Say that with me, Besorah. Great. So we have two words there that we see in the gospel that really refer to. All right, over there in the second row, the, Sonia, I need your help. I need you to keep an eye on that one. All right. So. Teacher, I sit you? I just point out the did say it whenever you said it. Hey, Hey, honestly, I'm so thankful for BlueLetterBible.com. Right. Strong's Greek three fifty one, U N Right there's this on this website that we use for a lot of a lot of our word study. There's this guy who does all the pronunciations of the words in the thickest southern accent that you can imagine. (laughs) Hebrew Besorah. I was like, that's that's amazing. All right, so the word means a good message, a good report. All right, a good message. Or a good report, good news in the New Testament. You'll find this word used several times, but in different forms. So, in its noun form, which is "euangelion," we see it seventy-six times in the New Testament alone. Right, in its verb form "euangelizo." We see it in we see it fifty was it fifty-four times, and then we even see it used in this form where it's where it's personified. It's applied to a person. Who is one who proclaims that gospel, and that it would be? um, You can even see it there, uh, evangelistas or evangelist. Right? We see that three times, so it's all over the New Testament. But the thing is, friends, it's not just a New Testament term; it's an Old Testament term too. If uh, if you look, especially if you look at the Greek translation of of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, which is really helpful. For us, and, and it's not it's not the scriptures; it's a translation of the scriptures. But it really does help us to see, uh, almost like a commentary, right, of uh, of people that were pretty close in time to these things being written and what their understanding is of what the Old Testament scriptures say. And so you can actually see the word euangelion several times in the Old Testament as well. So I want to quickly just kind of look through some Old Testament scriptures with you, and we're going to play that everybody's favorite game show, Spot That Euangelion, okay? Spot That Euangelion. All right, so we're going to try that. So I need someone to read, first of all, for me, 2 Samuel chapter 4. Verse 10. Who can do that for me? Need a volunteer. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 10. I will. Alright, Miss Dawn. Alright, while she's looking at that, somebody else go ahead and uh, go ahead and tell me this one's a little bit longer of a passage, but 2 Samuel 18, verses 19 and 20, 22, 25, and 27. It's all there in the same passage, but thank you, Brock. Alright. So then, while he's looking that one up, somebody else uh, look for me. Uh, 2 Kings 7, verse 9. 2 Kings, thank you, Bob. 2 Kings 7, 9. All right, so let's go back. Miss Dawn, why don't you read that for us? Uh, 2 Samuel 4, 10. When someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziglag. That was the reward I gave him. For the news. All right, so do we hear, the, we hear the term there? Right? This is familiar to us if we've been studying along with Pastor Cody in 2 Samuel, right? The messenger thought he was bringing good news to the king that Saul was dead, and uh, he uh, he found out otherwise. So, But you hear that phrase there, good news. In the Septuagint, guess what that word is? Evangelion, okay? All right, so let's look at that second one. I think, Brock, you have got that one, 2 Samuel 18? All right. Then Ahamaz the son of Zadok said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of Zonus. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news, because the king's son is dead. Uh, verse 22 Then Ahaz the son of Zadok said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushai. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Uh, verse 25, The watchman called out and told, the, uh, and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. Verse 27, The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of ah- Ahamaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. Alright, so we see again, good news. we see a pattern developing here of like the context in which this good news is given? Any, any guesses? What's going on in which, the, what's the general situation in which we're hearing this good news? Battle. Battle, that's right. Let's see if Second Kings 7, 9 gives us the same impression. Go ahead, Bob. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. All right. So, good. So, I want you to think about this. The word gospel, in, in, especially in its, uh, in its Old Testament context, means that it's literally a declaration of good news in battle. A declaration of good news in battle. And we've seen examples of that word being literally used that way in the Old Testament. So, when we come to the New Testament, and we see that same word... Um, What would make a modern church think that the evangelion, the good news, would be four steps on how you can better yourself or four steps on how you can earn God's favor, earn God's salvation? If you understand the context in which this has been given over and over and over again throughout the Bible, it can't mean something now that it didn't mean back then. Does that make sense? So friends, hear me. The gospel is not not a message about what you should do. The gospel is a message. It's good news about what God has done in the great war of human history. You see that there in your notes, right? The gospel is not a four-step process of what you should do the gospel is a message it's good news of a victory that God has won it's about what God has done in the great battle of human history and when we see this the context that literally jumps out at us from the word we can't accept the gospel as being anything else alright so when we say that again God has won the great victory. He has won a decisive victory over sin, Satan, and death for the sake of his people. Recalling what we've been talking about with our Old Testament 101 course a while back, the gospel is the good news or announcement of victory for the kingdom of God. And so this thing that when we we study so diligently and we go through the Pentateuch, right, and we're Digging into places like Leviticus and Numbers where the, the sledding is tough. and I mean, I, I, I agree. These are tough books to get through. But the, the context and the understanding of the word that they yield to us as we study them are worth their weight in gold. Do you see why we cannot uncouple ourselves from the Old Testament? Amen. We have no understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done. If we leave the Old Testament behind, all right. So, with that said, um, let's look at a couple of places. Um, we'll, I'm going to run through these really quickly, um, where we see in New Testament we hear this connection between the gospel and the kingdom, the gospel and the kingdom. Matthew, Matthew chapter four, verse twenty-three says, "And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel." of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Matthew 9, 35 And Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues preaching, guess what? The gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Matthew 24, 14 And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. Uh, now Mark chapter 1 verse 1 and verse 14 The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ The Son of God Verse 14 Now after John was put in prison Jesus came to Galilee Preaching, guess what? The gospel of the kingdom of God Luke four forty three, And he said to them I must preach the kingdom of God To the other cities also Because for this purpose I have been sent Luke 8 verse 1 now it came to pass, afterward, that he went through every city and village, sound familiar, preaching and bringing the glad tidings. Guess what that means? The gospel, right? Of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. Okay? Luke sixteen sixteen. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached. and everyone, uh, And everyone is pressing into it. And then Acts chapter 8, verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Okay? So there's a connection here, right? We we can't deny that. It's, It's over and over and over again throughout the Gospels. But to rightly understand this whole thing of God's kingdom and its connection to the Gospel... We need to make sure we understand again, go back and think about what is the kingdom. All right? For, if you are here for Old Testament 101, this should be something that's familiar to you. We like familiar things because it helps us to deepen our understanding and be better ready to teach it, right? Amen. There is no such thing as, oh, I've heard that before. I'm going to turn my, my ears off for the next few minutes, all right? This is always a good thing. And when I'm talking with, when I'm teaching my pastors in, in Nepal or Guys that I'm discipling, uh, we always go back and we ask questions like, what's something new that you've heard, right? Or what's something old that you were reminded of, right? All these things are good things, right? So with that said, let's talk about next, and this is in your notes, the nature of the kingdom, the nature of the kingdom. There are two key ways really to parse out what the kingdom of God is. One way you might say is just the rule and reign of God, the rule and reign of God. The God of the Bible is the creator and king over all creation. And his sovereignty doesn't change. Let's look at a couple more verses. Someone read for me uh, Psalm 93, verses 1 and 2. Who can do that? All right, Carrie. All right, so while she's looking that up, somebody give, uh, read for me 1 Timothy 6.15. Anybody? All right, Ms. Dawn, thank you. All right, Ms. Carrie, you ready to go? The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as His belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Amen. Amen. Alright. 1 Timothy. Which God will bring about in His own time. God the blessed and only ruler. The King of kings and Lord of hosts. Amen. So God always has and always will be sovereign king over all things. Right? we think about how this compares to literally every other religion in the world, right? Whether it's Hinduism, Greeks, Romans, Norse mythology, traditional religions, etc. Gods and goddesses in each one of these other pantheons, they fight against each other, they deceive one another, they trick one another, they, they take advantage over one another in order to be able to rule over at least some part of creation, right? Think about Greek mythology... That's the most despicable rabble of 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 supposed deities I've ever heard of. Right? Just always got, trying to get the upper hand on each other. That what kind of doubt and I mean, no wonder you see all these, all, hear all these different stories of of different individual human beings thinking that they can gain a, a leg up over over the gods, right? <laughs> And, and thinking, well, at least I can do something. I can, I can bring something that's worth, uh, that's worthy to this, to this God and they'll give me what I want. Or I'll trick them and I'll get with that what I want. That's not the way the God of the Bible works, friend. Right? Instead, we see in the Bible that Yahweh is the king over all the universe. God progressively unveils his kingdom throughout redemptive history, right? Redemptive history is just the story of redemption that spans the entirety of the Bible, right? Did you know that? That the Bible is one story. There are 66 different books and tons and tons of chapters and verses that are in them, but all those things together tell one story of God redeeming a people for himself. And friends, if you're trusting in Christ, that's with me. We are a part of his people. He has redeemed us to himself. And that is the story of redemption. And it's not over. But if we read the Bible, we can see how the story ends. Where God wins. And we get to be with Him if we're trusting in Christ. And so we see that there, right? That He is in in control from beginning to end. He is the creator, He is the king, and He is the owner. Right? And so God progressively, throughout the story of redemption, throughout the Bible, God is progressively revealing Himself to his people isn't that beautiful and so that really leads us now to a a really I would think a a better definition of God's kingdom and it's the one that we used over and over again in Old Testament 101 and we've been using it in 2 Samuel and it's three things right God's people people in God's place place under God's rule there you go friends that's the kingdom of God that's the kingdom of God from a man and a woman in a garden, ruling creation under God's authority, to a people from every tribe and tongue, in a new heavens and a new earth, bowing and confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's the kingdom of God. And we get to be a part of it. Isn't that good? Matthew 13, 31 through 32. Who can read that for me. Matthew 13, yeah. 31. All right, Pastor. good. All right, so while he's looking that up, somebody look up. Isaiah 53, 1 through 3. I've got it. All right, Travis. All right, and then 1 Corinthians 1, 27. Who can do that one? All right, Kerry. And then Daniel two thirty-four. All right, Tom. All right, so let's go back. Now we're going to look at Matthew 13, 31 and 32. Who had that? All right. Ahead, Another on. parable he put forth to them, saying, "The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. Which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, herbs uh, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches." Amen. All right, Isaiah fifty-three. That tramps. Yes. Mm-hmm. Who have believed our message, and to whom has the honor of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the forest ground. He is so stately form of majesty that we should look upon him, No appearance that we would be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Amen. All right, First Corinthians one twenty-seven. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Amen. And then Daniel 234. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and break them to pieces. Oh man. I can't wait till Old Testament 102. We get to talk about that together. That'll be fun. All right. So with that said, then as we're thinking it we've been thinking about what is the nature of God's kingdom. Now let's start matching uh, or even comparing and contrasting this understanding of the nature of God's kingdom that we see from the entirety of the Bible together, and let's compare that and contrast that to Israel's expectation of the kingdom, right? Expectations and hopes of Israel. So as the New Testament begins, we see Israel in this place of longingly, lastingly waiting for the Messiah, right? We talk about that word Messiah. What does that mean? Means anointed one, right? The one that has been set aside. This is Genesis 3.15. This is the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent that will deliver God's people, right? So the New Testament opens up with Israel, Israel warily waiting for God's kingdom to arrive. We can see that in places like Malachi chapter 3 and chapter 4. And again, we but we and we've said that God that God's kingdom is his people. In his place under his rule. But because of Old Testament 101, we know that Israel's sin led to a reverse of that, right? As the curse, right? Every covenant has blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And so they broke the Old Covenant. Namely, they broke the Mosaic Covenant. and so, And with that, then, there was a reversal, right? The land was decreasingly fruitful, and then they were removed from the land right we see that there that happened in 722 with the with the northern kingdom 586 bc with the southern kingdom but god as he promised he brings them back 70 years later than the southern kingdom that is and so and they have this kind of covenant renewal ceremony right in nehemiah we got to hear that when pastor cody and uh, there was a group of us that preached through Nehemiah together. And so we heard about that, right? Everybody's like, we, we know, we messed up, We've, we, we're, we're good now, right? It's all smooth sailing from here. And what happens at the end of Nehemiah? Tobiah the Ammonite, a foreigner who has been subverting the cause of Nehemiah and what the Lord was, was, was doing all along, guess where he's living? He's living in the temple. That's not okay, Right? And so we see uh, these things are breaking down again, the very things they promised they weren't going to do. And so we see uh, this is where Jeremiah and Ezekiel are talking about there's a new covenant that has to come. The old covenant cannot save. It cannot write God's word on our hearts. And so there's, there's something new that's coming. There's something better that's coming. And yet, the last thing that we see as Malachi draws to a close, that there is this period of 400 years. 400 years where God sovereignly stops speaking to his people. Now, what do you think that does to a people? That the thing that sets them apart is that they're the people who hear the, the voice of God speaking. Do you think that shakes them to their core? Even even when they went to Babylon, right? They thought, oh, the temple's destroyed. We're taken away into exile. Is God no longer our king? Is God not powerful enough to, to overcome the Babylonians? And what does Ezekiel see? He sees God on his throne there in Babylon, which means he's there with his people wherever they are. And he is still sovereign. And he is still working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But here in this moment, right before the New Testament begins, we see this period of silence. And I want you to think about that. Genesis, or not Genesis, Galatians chapter 4, I think was a verse that we memorized recently. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, right? Right? I want you to think about that, that God uses a famine of his word to bring about the fullness of time. Isn't that beautiful? And it produces a people that are eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come. A lot of idolatry has been done away with at this point. There's a sense of uh, really focusing in on the, on the, the Old Testament scriptures and this is a group called the Pharisees arise that say we're going to obey God's word, and in, in case we get too close to disobeying God's word, we're going to start fencing God's word with other rules and things like that to make sure that we don't disobey God's word. And so, but these were done. You have to understand the the, the heart intention of that was again we want to obey God's word because this is there's no new revelation right now. This is all we have, and so we're going to focus in on this. And so, then, and so what that produces is as the Medes and Persians are kind of stamped out by Alexander the Great and then the Romans, there's this sense that we're just getting kicked around from one kingdom to another. We need someone that's going to come in and save us. Maybe now is the time that the Messiah is going to come. And so we see that there uh, as the New Testament opens. And so they're longingly looking for the Messiah to come. They're looking for someone that's going to deliver them from their enemies. Rome at this point, and give them peace and fruitfulness in the promised land. They want a new, better version of the Mosaic covenant. Israel is hoping for this time. And so, um, in, in, in the midst of this though, I want to draw out to you that in Isaiah, chapter, was it Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9, and chapter, and chapter 52, verse 7, Isaiah really brings about Two different pictures of what this Messiah is going to look like. We don't have enough time for us to go to those verses at this point, but I think I've got that for you there in your notes. I hope I do. Uh, And so we see these two pictures. We see, first of all, we see a defeat of God's enemies. A defeat of God's enemies. This is something that the Messiah is going to do. He's going to come in and he's going to defeat his enemies. And secondly, we're going to see deliverance of God's people deliverance of God's people. He's going to save his people from those that hate them. right? This is you hear Zechariah in, in Luke chapter 1 talking about this, right that being saved from our enemies, we would serve God without fear all the days of our lives. right? This is a messianic hope that's taking place and it's, it's building off of Isaiah and other places in the, in the Old Testament. It says, the Lord has bared his holy arm. This is Isaiah 52, verse 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm, his strength, before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So with that then, let's think about gospel victory. Right, Gospel victory and the timing of kingdom fulfillment. Gospel victory and the timing of kingdom fulfillment. So when Jesus then comes on the scene as the Messiah, he he does something that Israel's not expecting. He reorients their understanding of these two things: the defeat of God's enemies and the deliverance of God's people. As well as this third thing, this the timing in which the fulfillment of the kingdom will happen. Right? They're wanting to see, they have a certain set of expectations, and Jesus comes in and says, there are things about these expectations that are right, right and good, but you're, you're, you're looking in the wrong direction, right? So we see this because compared to Israel's expectations, Christ opens up their eyes. And I want you to see this there in your notes. There's a greater deliverance than they could, I'm sorry, a greater enemy than they could ever have imagined, right? They're thinking their greatest problem is Rome. Jesus says the greatest problem that you have is sin and death. Right? As the old saying goes, we have met the enemy and they, they are us. Right? so you have a greater enemy than they ever dreamed. There's a greater deliverance they could ever, than they could have ever imagined. It's not just being delivered from, a, from a, a totalitarian dictator, it's being delivered from the kingdom of darkness, being delivered from death itself. And then, see, we see that it. There's a greater, there's a, a timeline there that they could never have expected. Right? They're expecting the Messiah comes back in, boom, it's over. Right? And yet, Jesus comes and he brings in part of this, but then he launches, he launches God's people into this era, this era of already for the kingdom and not yet for the kingdom. Right? There are some ways in which the, the picture of the Messiah is fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. But th- there's, there's other things that are still left undone. And so we're, we're waiting for this return that is promised. So I want, you to, I want us to look here and, and, and we'll look at these, these two, uh, these, these different facets in turn. So first, let's look at the defeat of God's enemies. The defeat of God's enemies. So we see this, first of all, in inauguration, right? Christ comes and he inaugurates the kingdom. Why? Because he's the king. He can do that, right? He kicks it off. So in his first advent, in his first appearing, Jesus inaugurates the kingdom by inflicting God's judgment on God's spiritual enemies. He inflicts God's judgment on God's spiritual enemies. He comes to crush the head of the serpent. And he does that not by raising up an army and fighting a battle. He does it by humbling himself even to the point of death on a cross. All right, so we see inflicting God's judgment on God's spiritual enemies, and then we see him extending God's mercy to God's human enemies. Because we remember, we without Christ, where do we stand in relation to Christ? We are his enemies, Right? We have committed high-handed treason against the king of the universe. And yet, Christ comes and he extends mercy to those who do not deserve mercy. And so we see, again, first that inauguration stage in Christ's first coming. Then we see, it's, we see the kingdom's continuation, right? We would call this the church age. This is, the age, this is where we fit in, into the story, Right? Sometimes we, we talk about how when we, we look back on stories about like David or Moses, we, we, we want to compare ourselves. We want to say, well, I can, I'm like Moses, or I'm like David. No, that's not you, right? However, you are in the story. You know who you are in the story? You. You are you in the story. And you're part of God's people by God's grace through Jesus Christ here in the, in the church age. Right, So in the church age, the church is not at war with people. Right, Our war is not with flesh and blood. It's with principalities and powers. We fight against Satan and other evil spirits. We see that in Ephesians 6. Followers of Christ then extend God's mercy to God's human enemies. And we do that because it's already been inaugurated by Christ. With the mercy that he has extended to us, it's intended to be sufficient for us and for others. And so, in the grace that Christ has given us, we extend his mercy to his enemies as well. That's, <clears throat> that's where evangelism comes in, right? So, um, And then also, not only that, but in the way that we relate to one another, the unity of the church is really like an exclamation point. it's, it's a, a beautiful display of God's defeat of Satan. Because friends I we're, we come from all over the place. And even amongst our different homes there are different cultures. there are different ways of looking at things, different points of view, different political opinions, different socioeconomic status and all these things in, in a lot of ways it's kind of like the disciples you think about the disciples, the 12 of them, you've got guys like Matthew, who's a tax collector, and you've got guys like Simon the Zealot, who would have been like, down with Rome, I want to take out anybody that's supporting Rome. Then you have Matthew, who's a Roman tax collector. Left to their own, what would happen? Matthew, Matthew's not looking too good, right? Yet, with Christ, we see them all functioning together. Working together for God's purpose and plan. <clears throat> so we see this is what the church looks like. That even though we have different points of view and come from different backgrounds, yet in Christ, we have more in common together as, as a church family than we do with our own unbelieving family members. So then we see not only inauguration, not only continuation, but consummation. This is when the new heavens and the earth come in. This is when Christ returns. When Christ returns, He will defeat God's spiritual and human enemies. He will leave nothing unchecked. Okay, so we see God. We see the defeat for God's enemies. Right. This is one way. This is one thread of the gospel. This is one um, <clears throat> one mark of the ministry of the of the Messiah. Also, we see the deliverance of God's people. The deliverance of God's people. So let's go back and look at those same markers. And see how this facet of it works. So again, inauguration. Jesus has a twofold strategy in coming and dying on the cross. First, he breaks the power of Satan over human beings. He breaks the power of Satan over human beings. And not only that, he's setting people free from sin and death. Setting people free from sin and death. All Both of these things accomplished... Well, might I had by Christ on the cross. So, not only in inauguration, but in its in the kingdom's continuation in the church age, the Holy Spirit has been given to to the people of God in power to produce witnesses for His glory. By this power, by His power, we participate in the proclamation, right, proclaiming and the application of gospel victory to those who are enslaved so not only proclaiming it but applying it right a gospel that is not procl- that is proclaimed but is not applied really looks pretty flimsy doesn't it if it if it has the potentially the power to save at least in our portrayal of it in our lives if i'm proclaiming this gospel that can save you but it doesn't seem to be transforming me. Something's not right. There's something about. It's not that. There's not wrong with the gospel. It's what's wrong is my application of it. So I need to be in step with the gospel. That's why Paul says, "Let your life be, uh, let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel." So we see uh, in, inauguration, continuation, and then we see consummation, the new heavens and the new earth. This is when God's people will fully experience all the promised blessings of the kingdom. The defeat of God's enemies and the deliverance of God's people represent the arrival of victory for the kingdom of God in Christ. They will finally possess all the ends of the earth and enjoy an unmitigated and unending peace. And so... As we, This is the context in which we need to understand the gospel, right? Because again, the gospel, if we get it wrong and we think that it's a four-step plan about how you can get saved, right? How you can be saved. You can save yourself even in some cases, people might think. Then we're completely missing the gospel, what the gospel is and what its function is in the kingdom of God. Because again, it's not, a four-step plan on what you need to do, it's a message of victory that God, the King of the Universe, has accomplished in the greatest war that, this is, that the world's ever known.